Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Praised as intrepid by the Philadelphia Inquirer, engaging by the Houston Chronicle, and endlessly fascinating by WQXR New York, pianist Michael Mizrahi has won acclaim for his compelling performances of a wide-ranging repertoire and his ability to connect with audiences of all ages. He's appeared as concerto soloist, recitalist, chamber musician, and teaching artist across the United States and abroad. Michael Mizrahi has performed in the world's leading concert halls, including Carnegie Hall, the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, and the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. He's soloed with orchestras such as the Houston Symphony and the National Symphony. He's won first prize at competitions such as the Imahog International Competition and the Bartok Kabalevsky Competition. Michael Mizrahi is a founding member of Now Ensemble and also a member of Dakota, ensembles on the forefront of premiering and championing new classical music. He's recorded extensively for New Amsterdam Records, including Currents, which was featured as one of NPR's best albums of the year and album of the week on WQXR. Michael is on faculty at the Lawrence University Conservatory, where he trains a new generation of musical Jedi. Michael, it's great to have you on One Symphony today. Can you talk a little bit about your musical upbringing and how it veered into the unknown? Well, uh, Devin, thank you for ha- having me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be speaking with you today. I started playing the piano. Well, I guess it depends what you define as playing. I think I plunked out some notes as, as a baby because my mom was a piano teacher. And when I was about four or five years old, we started having kind of lessons together. My mom was my first teacher all through elementary school. And I just really took to the piano, both in terms of the music I was playing. And I also just loved the feel of the keys. And I liked that you could press a key and it would make a sound. I went all the way through high school thinking I was going to be a scientist like my dad. My dad was a physicist since retired. And that was my career trajectory. I went to a science high school. And uh, it really took a gap year after college for me to kind of realize that music had always been a part of my life and that it was more than a hobby and something that I wanted to try professionally. I spent a few years in grad school at Yale working on a lot of traditional repertoire, which I love, Mozart, Beethoven, Schumann. And uh, it was my last semester in grad school when I I kind of fell in with a group of composers and decided to um, 
take up their offer to premiere one of their works on a concert. And I kind of fell in love with working with composers and premiering new works in addition to all the traditional playing that I do. I, I love the process of seeing a work in its in initial stages, giving uh, the first performance of a new piece, and, and one thing led to another and I found other like-minded instrumentalists and we formed this ensemble, now ensemble, which we're talking about today. want to touch on that scientific connection or your your dad you said was a physicist and also you're at Lawrence uh, University which is a liberal arts school the, the more I learn about you we, we share kind of similar trajectories I went to Grinnell College which is a very liberal arts school I was also pre-med and actually my favorite class ever was my physics class that I took to fulfill undergrad requirements um, at a community college and also you know at Grinnell I did some independent study and like interreligious dialogue so I, I'd love if, if you could talk about maybe the importance of that kind of well-rounded approach as a musician, um, but also how delving deeply into some of these other areas has influenced your music making. Well, I've always been interested in a lot of different things. And you mentioned Lawrence is a liberal arts college. That's one of the reasons I'm here. I, I don't think I could imagine myself at uh, a school where it was only about playing the piano or only about music and, and not about the way that different disciplines work together. Music has so many mathematical features. It deals with historical connections, performance practice, languages are a big part of music making. And really, it's not only music that has those features. I think the liberal arts in general all kind of work together to give us, give us, give us a lens through which to view the world. I mentioned earlier not being sure about going into music as a profession. And what drew me back into it was at at Yale, there was an opportunity also to explore music holistically through through a liberal arts lens. And I do think that that is an important way to experience music for both prospective performers uh, on, a, on a track to being professional musicians and for audiences. And I work with my students here very much so along those lines. And many of my students are double majors in piano and chemistry or with languages or with math. And those are, are always such great students to work with, those students that have those multiple interests. You've created, of course, Now Ensemble, which came out of, of Yale. And I'd love if you could talk about sort of how that started and, and what what pushed you in that direction? You know, you said you were at Yale studying Beethoven and Bach, and um, and you moved. You know, there's always a, a a pivot point where we move into that new direction. And and also, I'd love if you could talk about that 
really unique combination. I'm assuming that you know it's it's flute, clarinet, electric guitar, double bass, and of course you on piano. I'm assuming that came out of the fact that just that was the instrumentation that you were playing with your friends, or uh, maybe you can talk about if there was any more you know specific um, purposeful intent behind that. Yeah, one of my favorite words is serendipity, and that's what it was. We were at a. I mentioned earlier this this party where I I started talking to these composers, and there was this group of musicians who were all kind of new music curious, wanting to play um, some brand new rep, not just the older rep. And it was that instrumentation. And we got a, a friend of ours to write for that quintet. And we, you know, it was kind of a lark. It was like, we'll do this. This is a crazy group of instruments, but what the heck? And we didn't think it would go past that one concert. And, uh, you know, it kind of sounded good, the piece, that group of instruments. You get the the wind instruments playing melodically, and you have kind of a built-in rhythm section with bass, guitar, and piano. And uh, so then we got a few more pieces written for us, and they all kind of s- used us in similar ways. But then we got a new piece that used us in different ways. And we found not only did it sound good, that group of instruments together in this one particular way, but there were a whole range of ways of writing for this quintet. And we thought, hey, we might have stumbled on kind of a new chamber ensemble, kind of like the Pierrot ensemble from Schoenberg's time was a new instrumentation at the time that Schoenberg wrote Pierrot Lunaire for. But then it became such a cool sound that composers for 100 years have been writing for that instrumentation. And we'd like to think that we've played a role in the 21st century in a similar way of creating a new group of instruments that composers can write for, not just for our group, but for anyone who wants to form that quintet of instruments. about this ensemble is a lot of the people who play for it are also composing, but also you're recommissioning composers over a long span of time with different works on on some of your albums. You know, just a couple of the albums like you've just come out with Before and After, and you have some solo albums, but there's also Dreamfall. Um, there's the Mazzoli songs from The Uproar that you all did. Can you talk about that uh, composer-performer relationship in terms of a collaboration? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the appealing things about being in a group like Now Ensemble is that continued relationship with composers over several years and at this point, almost decades. One thing uh, that that drew me to music in general, not just new music, was chamber music, playing in small ensembles, conductorless ensembles. So you make all the decisions yourself, but you're playing in a group of instruments and you kind of lead the group from within. And one of the difficulties in premiering new works can be 
that these groups are thrown together for the premiere and then never see each other again. Sometimes that's just logistically how it has to be if it's an unusual instrumentation or if it's a piece written for a festival and those musicians are only there at that time. What we wanted to do was form a group that would take kind of the the tradition of chamber music playing that goes back 200, 300 years of a group that stays together, gets to know each other's sounds, forms a group sound, and also is uh, gives repeat performances of these new works and works with composers on a number of different pieces, including Before and After, which is a 45-minute piece uh, by Sean Fryer, who we had already worked with before that. So the possibilities for bringing new music into the world when there's a dedicated chamber ensemble, I think, are far greater than when it's these kind of one-off performances. You talked about how every performance is testing out new ideas. I'd love for you to talk about, um, and Sean Fryer, who is also a friend of One Symphony, I know you performed his Velvet Hammer, and then, of course, before and after years later. Um, and I know it's not just, okay, Sean, write the music, send us the parts. It's, it's, a very, it's a very strong give and take approach. Can you talk about that specific testing ground ability with regards to that collaboration with Sean? Right. Well, when you work with a living composer, for one thing, you can have a back and forth. You can't do that with Chopin, right? He's dead. So there is Some built people in, try though, right? You can try. You can do a seance, I suppose, or something. But, you know, so there is that possibility is on the table with, with a living composer. With uh, a group like Now Ensemble that's developed a relationship with composers over the years, and, and as you mentioned, there are composers in the ensemble, it's not just the finished piece that we're in dialogue with the composer about, but at every stage of the process, which is, which is really cool. So Sean, for example, he would bring in little snippets like, is this possible on your instrument? Or let's see what this sounds like as a motive, you know, just kind of scrapbook kind of stuff. And we would give feedback and that would help shape the piece. I hope he told you this when you spoke to him, that that is, I think, uh, an amazing process for composer and performer because you're all kind of an integral part of bringing this new music into the world. And this idea of Sean is writing a piece for us as five performers, not just our instruments, but what can we bring in terms of our interpretation? And then we can also bring him our experience in playing in this group of instruments and say, hey, have you thought about this doubling? Or what do you think about, um, you know, putting this down an octave or this really doesn't work, but I could make it really effective this way. And then that makes its way into the final piece. Uh, It gives ownership to the performers in a way that playing older music can't. talking about interpretation, for example, with Sean's newest album, Before and After, story-wise, it's about the lifespan of civilizations over large swaths of time or the, the births and the deaths. It could be a hundred years or a million years. Can you talk about the storytelling aspect? Because usually that's, that's left to the composer. You know, Berlioz telling the Symphony Fantastique a story about 
falling in love and um, you know going on an opium trip and and kind of going crazy and and being rejected by his beloved and then killing her and then going to hell. Um, usually, that's kind of in the realm of the composer. For, for example, in your your piano solo album, Currents, um, one of the pieces that I love is is the, the Currents by Sarah Kirkland Snyder. Uh, who's an incredible composer. She, she talks about how this allows the focus on storytelling. And can, and, and can you talk about maybe how as a, as a performer and interpreter, you take part in that kind of sacred act? Well, in the moment of performance, the performer is the storyteller. So there is that aspect to the relationship that, you know, at the end, that's always kind of the, the medium through which the story is told. You know, and Sean took on some of these heavy topics in this piece. And, I, you know, I want to say, on the one hand, that was that was all him. I mean, he wanted to, to use this piece to kind of tell that story. Since, you know, you can't, um, you can't completely separate out when you have a, a long term relationship with a composer, how much of the storytelling is originating with the composer and how much of it is based on interactions with the ensemble and a sense for what kind of story can I tell with this ensemble. So I think there's part of that for this piece, uh, for sure. Every relationship is is different. I You mentioned my solo album, Currents. I had some very specific conversations with composers on that record, where um, in some cases, I can think of one piece on that album where the composer, Asha Srinivasan, uh, heard me perform some Bartok. Hmm. And we talked about her writing a piece that would kind of appear on the same program as a Bartok piece. And we kind of talked about what that would mean. And there was a way that her new piece was responding to something that, that she had heard uh, from me as a performer. There have been other cases where uh, sometimes it's even as simple as, Hey, this album needs something really peppy on it. What do you think about writing a piece that's going to fit that? mode and help tell this story of the album in this piece. So there are different ways that composers come to kind of the story of the piece in conversations with performers, hearing the performer play. But then in the end, the performer holds all the cards when you're out on stage or in the recording studio playing the piece. Can you talk about your approach to programming? Because you you have all these incredible albums, a lot of them through New Amsterdam Records. And each album could kind of have a an overall theme and, and, and a mood that that kind of um, sucks the listener in and kind of holds them for an hour. Does that differ from live programming, whether it be solo recitals, chamber recitals, or live programming with now, or um, or I know you also solo with orchestras as well. Well, soloing with an orchestra, then that programming is is usually out of my domain. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm slotted into whatever their season is. Programming is is fascinating because it's it's like curating an experience. You talk about curating an art exhibit or uh, even a meal. It's a experience from start to finish. The fundamental experience on an album is is just different fundamentally than a live concert. And so, I think if we're in a position to be curating, and we we aren't always, but sometimes we are in a position to curate that experience, we always want to take into account. If it's a live performance, who is the audience? Is this someone who, for whom 19th century is as far as they go in listening to music? So how are we going to contextualize these newer pieces? Or is it a, you know, ensemble modern sponsored festival where it's uh, avant-garde and, and it's, it's a totally different context? So you're absolutely right that curating the performance is something that I think about a lot. And it's something that takes into account the, the context, which is different 
each time. And when I say curating a, a performance, that kind of goes from the the advertisement for the performance all the way how you talk about it, all the way through the lighting when the audience comes in. Are you flowing from one piece to the next? Is there applause? Are you bowing? What are you wearing? All those come into play for a live uh, concert. And for an album, you're talking about album art. You're talking about track order, knowing that a lot of audiences will listen on Spotify where the track order is meaningless uh, for the most part. The titles of the pieces, the program notes, do you include them or not? Do you have a moody portrait of yourself on the front or a picture of nature or what? You know, there's all these things that go into curation. And uh, the only takeaway I would say for, for, for the listeners here is, is to think about that. It's not random, that the entire experience is something that can be shaped. And then how have, have the past couple of years affected your, um, you, your curation, so to speak? Um, do you, do you do shorter concerts? Do you, um, obviously you've been for decades, you've been doing, you've been introducing new works to audiences. Do you find that it's important to speak about those before or after the performance and not just like a pre-concert talk? Yeah, I've, I'm a big proponent of speaking from the stage and keeping things kind of informal. I actually do prefer that to a pre-concert talk. But it depends on, on the venue. I think we've all had to learn in the last two years, it's kind of a new genre of like the Zoom concert. And we've just been all trying to figure that out. I think some aspects of that may actually may actually stay. I mean, I think shorter events, uh, we all were kind of Zoomed out. So these kind of quick strike, 35, 40 minute things became uh, much more appealing. And I think I'm taking some of that to even some of the live programming the way that Zoom allowed for some pre-recorded content to be interwoven with rec- with live content, so it was kind of its own genre. The last two years, I, I did put on uh, now ensemble did, and also as a soloist. In fact, I even ran a chamber music festival on Zoom in 2020, and all of those kind of revealed unique challenges and and opportunities that we'll see what what happens going forward. Do you take to? Uh longer format pieces like before and after is a, is a full symphonic work for now ensemble. Um, or for example, like on one of your albums, four pieces for solo piano by Ryan Brown, um, kind of a multi-movement structure, you know, like the Bruckner symphony or the Bizet opera length. Um, I find as a performer, it's harder to sell longer format works these days because maybe, you know, the attention spans of the audiences we're trying to attract, we have to compete with a lot of things. Does that influence you and your programming decisions in terms of like longer form works or shorter works that have a quick pop and a theme and that you can remember and sing in the shower? You're right that there are kind of different trends in listening habits and there is an advantage to the short you know, even as short as one minute, if you're thinking about TikTok, a presentation of, of material. But then I also think there's there's a real desire for longer form works 
like chamber operas, which are much more popular now than they were 15 years ago. And in some ways, a 45 minute piece like Before and After can feel more cohesive and and shorter, if you're thinking about length, than 10 pieces that are each five minutes, because then you're kind of bouncing around into different sound worlds. Also, I think in some ways, if, if we are kind of zoomed out and Zoom was all about kind of popping into things for a little bit and then popping out, I, th- I think uh, at least for me, and I've spoken to some people who feel the same way, there's something really lovely about going into a hall and not having to turn on technology and to just have 50 minutes of kind of like one mood or one theme to grapple with and then and then call it a day. There's something appealing to that. So, I, you know, it's kind of a non-answer. It depends on the context, but I have to say I'm drifting towards longer form works lately than shorter pieces myself. And that's as a pianist or a presenter or commissioner? All of the above. Like Now Ensemble is working with some composers on some new projects. And, and the, the model used to be write us a seven or eight minute piece and great. And I've had more and more conversations with composers. I mean, Sean is an example of that, who we want to talk for a couple of years about you know, a, a big half hour piece or structure a whole tour around a new uh, larger scale work. Or we're doing an opera premiere this fall with Judd Greenstein, who's a member of the ensemble. And that's been a multi-year process. I'm also going into the studio next week. It's just coincidence. I'm recording my third solo album. And nice. a lot of the rep that I'm recording is is a longer form, actually multi-movement pieces. And some of that's a coincidence. And some of it is, I think, what I'm gravitating towards these days. Yeah, and I find with the, with longer pieces, they're so deterministic as to your program, right? Like you, you know, the longer the piece, like if you do a, I mean, I'm 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 more symphonic, so I'm thinking symphonically, but Mahler Symphony Number no. Five, <laughs> what else are you going to put on the program? I, I do enjoy the longer forms, but they can pigeonhole you programmatically. So you mentioned your upcoming uh, opera collaboration with Judd Greenstein and your um, new uh, solo piano album coming up. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the future of Now Ensemble? And I and it's my understanding that most of them are are kind of spread out, centered in New York. You're in Wisconsin. Can you talk about that process? And you know, when a project comes up, like how do you get together? How do you rehearse it? How do you record it? How do you workshop it? Yeah, well, you may have hit on something in terms of gravitating towards longer form events. The reality of us all having individual careers in separate places is such that it's a little less. Like the old days, we all lived in New York, and so we could rehearse a five-minute piece you know, at our weekly rehearsal. Now it's come together for a week and do this project. You asked about the future of Now Ensemble. I mean, I, I do think a group that's been around as long as we have, there's a, a history and kind of gravitas to, to the group that we want to see continue. We have a number of exciting projects that we're exploring right now, some multimedia stuff. I can't say more about it right now, but but we're really excited about what the immediate future brings. And in terms of my, my solo projects, a lot of composers who I deeply respect and who I'm thrilled to be able to include their music on an album, this solo album, it's probably going to be a little bit longer than my last two because it's kind of post-pandemic a lot of music has come in and I haven't had a, a chance to record in a little while because of, of travel restrictions and other things. So I'm really excited about, about this project. Mark Danzigers, who's the guitarist and now ensemble and a composer, is producing and he wrote a piece for the album, the solo album. And so that'll be really exciting as well. 
You said our role is to get the music out there and to record it and to play it repeatedly. Some of it will fall by the wayside and some of it will be canonic. And there's a whole gray area in between. What are the aspects of music that you've played over the past couple decades? Like, for example, Beethoven knew that his music would be played 200 years from now, but Bach probably didn't think it would at all. Are there aspects or, or, or kind of qualities inherently that you feel creates canon? That's a great question. And I firmly believe that one of the central roles of a performer is to bring new music into the world, to tell those stories, to allude to that earlier conversation. 200 years ago, the composer would write for themselves, you know, Mozart, even Beethoven in the earlier years, they would premiere their own work. In the mid 19th century, those roles kind of bifurcated. So you'd have the the kind of composer, there's this image of the of the kind of uh, this romantic image of the composer in a room writing the score, you know, think of later Beethoven with the crazy hair, and then someone else is going to play the music. And in some cases, these composers were writing for the future, right? So they're they're thinking about about their legacy. But if no, it's kind of like the tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. Like if, if the music is written, but no one plays it, then it kind of can't be considered historically. I, I don't mean to say that, that the music is, music is only written to be considered for posterity. That, that also is not quite right. But there is a sense that the music is presented and recorded and performed repeatedly. So you kind of get a, a performance history of the piece. And then not every piece will live on, you know, not every piece should live on, but it deserves to be given a hearing and it deserves to be taken seriously and to be performed with the same level of commitment as we approach older music. I think more and more performers are coming around to this. I'd say 30 years ago, which is before my time as a performer, there was this sense of keeping alive an an older classical canon. And that's important too. You know, it's like, we need to have the museums. We need to have this these old works played. And, and I studied with teachers who had, you know, uh, traced their lineage straight to Beethoven and Liszt and, and amazing uh, interpretations of that music. And I love that music. And I teach my students that music. But there also has to be not only this kind of in the margins, but front and center, what's being written today. And we're going to take it seriously. And it's not going to be just a two minute piece that we practice the least, but it's going to be a big new sonata that we're going to play and we're going to spend a lot of time on. And then maybe maybe it's not going to be a piece that that we want to come back to in 10 years, but so, sometimes it will be. And we can't know unless we devote ourselves with passion to that project as performers. Well, thank you, Michael, for pioneering the way and, and laying down some of our canon. And it's been a, a great time speaking with you. And I really appreciate you uh, joining on us on One Symphony. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for the great questions, Devin. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. My apologies for the hiatus. I had a bad case of COVID in May, but I'm happy to be back in action. Thanks to Michael Mizrahi for sharing his music and wealth of knowledge. Thank you to Now Ensemble and New Amsterdam Records for making this episode possible. Computer Wave by William Brittell and Four Pieces for Solo Piano by Ryan Brown can be found on the album The Bright Motion. Dreamfall by Mark Danzigers and Cradle from Before and After by Sean Fryer were performed by the Now Ensemble. You can check out the music of Michael Mizrahi and Now Ensemble wherever you listen to your music and online at michaelmizrahipiano.com and nowensemble.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. 
Thank you to new supporters Robin and James for making the show possible. Please feel free to rate, review, and share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music.